Welcome to FRT, the IAF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Rainier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IAF. Following U.S. President Biden's recent executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets, I'm here with Carol House and Chris Giancarlo. Carol is currently Director of Cybersecurity and Secure Digital Innovation at the White House National Security Council, coming from an impressive tenure at the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. Chris is the former chairman of the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, where he oversaw regulation of the futures, options, and swaps derivatives markets during perhaps the most consequential time for digital assets in the earliest stage of these markets' development. Chris is well known as Crypto Dad for his pioneering efforts in this space and leadership of the regulatory community as an early proponent of crypto's role in America's competitiveness globally. Chris is also founder of the Digital Dollar Foundation, whose efforts we will discuss later in today's podcast. Welcome, Carol. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Jess. Great to be with you. Thrilled to be here. We understand the order has been a long time in the making, and I know that you're very excited to see it come out when it finally did. For my part, I would certainly say it's quite comprehensive and and somewhat the, the first of its kind in many ways. Can you just start by talking to us a little bit about the main messages that the White House was looking to get across and, and where those messages really came out in the various sections or elements of the order that you would highlight? Absolutely. Would be thrilled to. And you're right. I've been very excited about this effort underway. And the entire interagency is really looking forward to moving forward with the direction that the president gave us. The key fundamental message from the executive order is that we see that there is a huge growth that's happened in the cryptocurrency sector, right? It reached a $3 trillion market cap last November. We see over 100 countries that are exploring or piloting different central bank digital currencies for cross-border and domestic use. But we also see that without proper oversight and regulation, this rapid growth in cryptocurrency use can bring risks to everyday Americans and to stability of our businesses, our financial system, and national security. So we want to make sure that the direction of the digital asset ecosystem is done responsibly. I think there's also a really core underlying message about the fact that innovation is part and parcel to the American economy driving how we generate jobs and opportunities, seek and grow new industries, maintain global economic competitiveness. I think that the executive order really struck a great balance there and directed a couple of key actions. First, it established a comprehensive federal framework to ensure that the U.S. continues to play a leading role in innovation and governance of digital assets at home and abroad, consistent with our democratic values and to the benefit of U.S. global competitiveness. Second, we directed relevant departments and agencies to initiate research into the merits of a U.S. central bank digital currency. And third, it called for development of plans to mitigate the illicit finance and national security risks posed by the misuse of digital assets. The undercurrent of the EO recognizes and reinforces U.S. leadership in the global financial system, safeguards long-term efficacy of critical national security tools, like sanctions and anti-money laundering frameworks, ensures that the digital asset ecosystem will evolve in a manner consistent with democratic values and also will protect Americans, consumers, and the integrity of the global financial system. So around the timing of the order now, of course, has fallen during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Did anything change about it or just become more apparent or more tangible in a particular section as the invasion began? 
we've definitely seen that question come up before. And no, the, the timing uh, was more coincidental, I would say. It's been a long ongoing effort for many months and involved input from lots of agencies. So it wasn't directed at any one particular nation or any one particular asset. Of course, in the wake of Russia's unprovoked aggression against Ukraine, the issues on taking action with international partners, with industry and across U.S. government to mitigate illicit finance concerns, as well as any potential, whether limited or more expansive, use of cryptocurrency and sanctions evasion, the U.S. government definitely stands ready to identify that activity and then work with our partners to interdict it. One more question for you before I turn over to Chris here around the speculation that crypto could facilitate sanctions evasion, since you just brought that up. I feel that we've really settled on in the last couple of weeks, at least in the case of Russia and a G20 economy. I think it was Todd um, Conklin at Treasury who stated, you know, you can't just flip a switch and run a G20 economy overnight on crypto. And that we've seen, you know, the Russians being much more adept at, and practiced at hiding money in other ways, be it through shell companies or, or other manners. So that said, though, looking forward to examples that are less immediate, not the Russian economy, but perhaps smaller economies in the future, do you think that crypto could present more significant concerns in those cases of, of leakage around sanctions? Perhaps we have Iran and North Korea to look at that have had fairly limited success. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think that that's a message that's sometimes lost. It's not that cryptocurrency, you know, isn't potentially a risk. Any technology or financial system can be exploited by rogue nations, by criminal actors if proper controls are not put in place. And the inadequacy of international regulation for anti-money laundering purposes consistent with the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force standards, is the greatest vulnerability in the system that's being exploited. So the absence of those controls uh, really present an opportunity for criminal and rogue nation exploitation. Again, I concur with everything that the Department of the Treasury has pointed to highlighting that the scale that the Russian state would, would need to successfully circumvent the sanctions that the U.S. and our partners have put in place would likely make cryptocurrency not suitable as a primary tool for the state, but it would probably be a part of a suite of tools. So it is still something that we look for. We expect industry to remain vigilant against. We've seen it before and previously taken action against rogue nations using it in sanctions evasion, including in our action against the Venezuelan Petro and our actions against North Korea's cybercriminal activity and use of cryptocurrency to generate revenue and evade U.S. sanctions. So it is still something that we need to remain vigilant against and look out for, even if it may not be like a primary tool for the entire Russian state to evade the sanctions that the U.S. and international community have in place here. So I'd like to turn to Chris here for his comments. Chris, could you share your reactions to the executive order? And I'm also particularly curious in how you see its issuance impacting other countries' frameworks and, and the speed at which they focus on advancing their digital assets efforts. Well, I very much agree with Carol. I, I think I took away three sort of thematic takeaways from the executive order. I was struck by its comprehensiveness. There were agencies and concerns raised in it that you haven't often heard, such as national security and, and other areas. Its balance, I was very pleased to see that it was, I thought, approached crypto as both the glass is half full and the glass is half empty. It was a very balanced approach, seeing both what could go wrong, but also what could go right if development is, is channeled in the right way. And I was very pleased with its forward-leaning nature. I think it really did instruct agencies to get up to speed, to, to really do the job of mastering this technology and learning. The fact of the matter is the private sector has now had 
14 years of work on this innovation in the public sector is that far behind. So I commend the White House for instructing the federal government. Let's be sanguine about what an executive order is and what it's not. An executive order is an order to the executive branch of government to do certain things. It doesn't create law for the private sector. It doesn't impact the private sector. It impacts government. And as someone who was both subject to executive orders, but often not, because agencies like the CFTC and the SEC that are independent agencies are not technically subject to executive orders, but they honor them in the breach. And now in the private sector, as someone both before and after my government service who practiced law and often responded to government comment requests, I have to say I was struck by the time periods for the agencies to do their work between 180 days, in some cases, 12 months. I think that's the right amount of time for agencies to respond, but it does contrast with the 30-day time periods that seem to be now the norm for the private sector to respond to comment periods. I would point out that, that sometimes it does take a proper amount of time to analyze the impact of this new technology. And and that applies to both the private sector and, and the official sector. The one area where it does actually make a statement as to its views is the area of central bank digital currency. And that's particularly pleasing to me because it was almost now two and a half years ago in an op-ed I did in the Wall Street Journal in the spring of 2019, saying that we need to view what China's doing with the digital currency as a Sputnik moment for the United States. And I think that this executive order reflects that same feeling, that the the development of central bank digital currency is going to be a, a fundamental sea change, and it presents challenges for the U.S. dollar's role as a reserve currency. And and those challenges, they shouldn't be over-interpreted, but they need to be taken seriously. And this executive order basically says that we need to take this seriously. We need to think about how do we future-proof the dollar and its role in the global economy that has been so important Chris, I really would agree that the order really does not mince words as to the administration's position on the urgency of research and development around a a U.S. CBDC. And it occurred to me that just right now, happening to be the time of a a much more strengthened NATO and international coordination in response to Russia's actions that, again, just happened to be at this particular time that, you know, just thinking through how that may fuel or speed up the coordination of responses by other entities globally. Let me share with you my thoughts there. I I know a lot of the public conversation right now is whether crypto can be used to undermine this particular expression of sanctions. And I think it's an appropriate conversation. I think it's probably as, as exactly as Carol said, not in and of by itself, but as part of a basket. But I'll share with you my bigger concern. My bigger concern is not that sanctions will be undermined by crypto. My concern is sanctions are going to work and are going to destroy the Russian economy. And a lot of our economic adversaries and competitors around the world are going to see that. And I worry it's actually going to accelerate attempts to move away from the existing dollar-based, bank account-based financial system to search for alternatives. And I think they will view CBDC, central bank digital currency, as one of those alternatives. And so it just makes it more urgent. The United States needs to move forward with experimenting. And whether we deploy one or not domestically or internationally is is almost a separate question. But being a leader in the technology is important. Let's not be naive. China's not just developing their ECNY for domestic use, but for export purposes, just as they've mastered 5G technology, they're one of the major exporters of that technology around the globe. 
they wanted to deploy, and I've just been part of a wonderful study done by the Hoover Institute after a year of studying the ECNY, interviewing senior officials with the People's Bank of China, bringing together some leading scholars here in the United States. We issued a report two weeks ago, which similarly makes the case that China aims to develop this technology for domestic use, but for export use on their Belt and Road initiatives. And countries like Venezuela and Cuba that aspire to having a central bank digital currency with the surveillance capabilities that China is building into this will use it. And so my worry with the our current use of sanctions, which is the greatest weaponization of the dollar the world has ever seen, and we can argue its justification in the wake of, as Carol put it, Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine. Uh, and I'm not arguing that case. But, you know, out of warfare, things change and things change fast if you just look back on history. And I think you're going to see a greater effort, perhaps, by some nations that may want to use warcraft in the future to express power, whether it's to retake lands they claim as their own, etc., and don't want to happen to them what's happening to Russia and are going to look for alternatives. And so I think this is going to spur other countries to experiment with CBDC. And we can't sit back and just rely on the awesome power of the dollar in its current analog state. We need to modernize the dollar and future-proof it for a digital economy of the world to come. Carol, would you have any comments? Yeah, and I really appreciate Chris's great insights. And and I'll come back to some of his comments on the EO, which I think sometimes are missed. Um, I really appreciate just the breadth and scope of U.S. government agencies that are participating in it. I think the opportunity to leverage lots of authorities that a lot of people probably don't think about when they think about digital assets creates a lot of opportunity for us. But specific to this issue, first, I'll say the primacy of the dollar is underpinned by the United States' credible and longstanding commitment to transparency, rule of law, contractual obligations and rights, deep and liquid financial markets and sound economic governance, including the full independence of the Federal Reserve System. So the dollar's role has been and remains crucial to the stability of the international monetary system. Foreign central bank digital currencies by themselves do not threaten this dominance. However, we are constantly assessing these developments against this core policy objective on looking at the U.S. dollar and its role in global financial markets. And you're right that this EO was not issued in a vacuum and ignoring the fact that over 100 nations are exploring central bank digital currencies and what the implications could be for the future of money and potentially a fragmented financial system and what that could do having an impact on the U.S.'s role. So we definitely are looking at that as well as really going to lean in very hard on our partnerships in the international stage. You'll see that the president's direction and focus on development of the technology, capacity, expertise of a U.S. central bank digital currency isn't just found in the policy objective section of the EO saying that he places the highest urgency on this, but also in the international engagement framework where he's prioritizing the need for the U.S. to engage in you know, experimentation and pilots and, and standards-making bodies related to digital asset efforts, also in our industry engagements, in the technology and capacity assessment that the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy will be leading with the interagency. So I, I definitely concur with Chris's comment that it's critical for us to think very hard with our key partners like the G7 and you know, making sure that central bank digital currencies and other digital assets are developing consistent with principles that are critical for democracy, since I think authoritarian central bank digital currencies will look very different from anything that an American central bank digital currency, if we determine is in the national interest, would look like. 
Very good points. Let me turn it on its head for just a moment and play devil's advocate and, and hear you know from both of you if you do have thoughts to share. If you were to argue against creating a central bank digital currency in, in this particular setting or against any way that we're currently going about that research and development, what would be the opposite argument you might have if you're willing to share? I'll pick up on Carol's points. She mentions all those underpinnings of the dollar, which are also true and also important. And you know, aside from the commercial aspects of it, it's used in pricing of global commodities. It's, you know, historic stableness. There are softer elements of it that are probably what make it as most powerful. And those are elements of aspirational values of free expression, free enterprise, openness, transparency, and ultimately privacy. Economic privacy is one of the key concerns. And so a lot of our work at the Digital Dollar Project, we're a private sector effort. We're 501c3, nonprofit, we're nonpartisan. But what we seek to bring to the conversation is a lot of those value propositions of a free society. We must make sure if we deploy a digital dollar, either for wholesale use, for, for domestic use, for international use, however we deploy it, it must reflect the values of a free society to continue to have the dollar as that aspirational currency around the world. And here's an area where I will express disappointment with a recent government uh, paper, and that was the Fed's paper on central bank digital currency, which had a lot of good in it, but one area that was troubling, and that was its reference to privacy only referred to consumer privacy. So presumably a digital dollar would not be tracked if one shops at Target as opposed to Walmart. But what does consumer privacy mean if someone wants to give to something of a controversial cause, like, say, Planned Parenthood? or right to life. Is that a consumer transaction or is that a different transaction? And will that information be surveilled or censored by a left-wing government or right-wing government? And so those are areas where I think a free society needs to make sure if a digital dollar is going to succeed as well as the analog dollar has succeeded by encoding within it the aspirations of a free society, that we've got to make sure we get those values right in the development of a digital dollar. And that's an area where the Digital Dollar Project is going to be speaking about as we go forward. Well, first, I would defer ultimately to the decision that the U.S. government, as well as the Federal Reserve, and then probably having to partner with Congress, will end up making and determining whether or not and how we issue a central bank digital currency. But understanding the spirit of the question by the president giving us direction to place the highest urgency on research and development on a central bank digital currency means that we recognize there are critically important choices related to design and implementation and questions around technological infrastructure, capacity, governance, expertise that all really require further assessment. We're the largest economy in the world. Our financial markets are the most robust and complex. The U.S. dollar is the major global reserve currency. Any decision that we make will have significant implications, not only for our financial system, but for the world's as well. So I think it's possible that we ultimately determine that issuing a central bank digital currency isn't in our interest. It may instead stoke other research and development on modernizing traditional payment systems further. Or we may determine that proper comprehensive regulation in the cryptocurrency system may be something that, again, interfaces with the Federal Reserve System and everything else that we drive innovation in. So the future, there has been no decision made yet. And I think that the president made it clear by not stating that we will issue one and that it is his directive to do so, but instead to place the highest urgency on really understanding and examining 
all those different nuances and facets of the technology, the governance, and implications for things like privacy. Because again, an American and a democratic central bank digital currency looks very different from an authoritarian regime would put in place. So how do we make sure that the system protects and preserves those values, and then also have to communicate that to a population that we want to potentially use it. And of course, there's different implications if we do it wholesale or retail. There's lots of different decisions to be made. And I appreciate the work that the Fed put into that paper, which pointed to a lot of key decisions that have to be made and issues that have to be further examined. If I could just add, I I was remiss to not mention that the Biden administration's executive order is quite, I think, fulsome and well-balanced in talking about the values that need to go into a central bank digital currency, including values of privacy, which it doesn't qualify as referring only to consumer values. So I, I think the EO got the balance right, but the disappointment was in the earlier Federal Reserve paper. And I've already expressed my thoughts on that and will continue to express my thoughts on Let me add one other thing. When we talk about central bank digital currency, my recently published book, Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money, I actually talk about the role of a free society in developing money. And I make the point that money is as much a social construct as it is a government construct. And I actually quote the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, who basically said, if you don't have social trust in money, it won't succeed. So it's really got to be developed with society alongside. And whenever the United States has done big technological things, whether it's explore outer space or explore cyberspace, it's always been a partnership between the private sector and the official sector. And in fact, I think it was French Premier Clemenceau, who after World War I looked back and said, you know, war's too important to be left to the generals. Well, in my book, I actually take the view that money's too important to be left to central bankers. And I say that with great respect with Chairman Powell, with whom I had the the honor to serve, and and Leo Brainerd. I think they are really trying to get this right. But I think the private sector has got an important role to play in shaping, and Carol's absolutely right, the decision whether to deploy it or not deploy it is a far off decision. But right now, we can't sit back. We've got to be out in front experimenting with this. And I think the private sector are working alongside the public sector is the right combination to make sure that if we deploy it, it will work. We get the whole proposition right, people will use it. And the way to get it right is a partnership between the private sector and the official sector. Oftentimes, public-private partnerships are discussed as good ideas or made in recommendations. And hopefully we see that play out in a very positive way if it if it turns out to be the right way to pursue the activities here. It, it does occur to me as somebody who grew up in the Federal Reserve myself throughout the financial crisis and then was at the U.S. Treasury uh, during some of the development and, and maturation of the digital asset markets. I did appreciate in the executive order the recognition of the Federal Reserve role in its research and its report and the importance of it coming to its conclusions separate from the other conclusions that reports would come to in the executive branch side and then combining those two bringing the best of the brain trust together to figure out if moving forward is appropriate and in the national interest and then how to best do so since you know the independence of, of a central bank is something that we see over and over again in history as an important component to the economy of stability. Looking more at the unbacked crypto asset side, I noticed that Europe seems to be in the midst of a debate that I know you're you're quite familiar with, Chris, about who should regulate crypto, who should be that crypto watchdog, as as many are saying. I know in in your time as chairman of the CFTC, 
at the earliest stages when you are working through, is it CFTC, is it the SEC, uh, FinCEN's purview, and now following the president's working group, recommendations around you know bringing in the federal banking regulators into play. I'd love to hear your thoughts and, and Carol, as well as you have thoughts as you have been at, at FinCEN, how you see that playing out in, in Europe right now, as, as well as the U.S. Yeah, I'll lead off, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing Carol's thoughts. And, and I think we'll probably both tell you it's complicated. And part of the reason it's complicated is because the United States went first in the global world to build a regulatory structure following the Great Depression in the 1930s, and a regulatory structure that very much was reflective of the financial markets that existed at that time. Financial markets that were analog, that were physical, that were face-to-face, that took place in limestone-pillared buildings in the center of downtown areas. It really didn't use much in the way of electronic communications. They had ticker tape machines that were just beginning, and there wasn't a lot else. There also wasn't a national marketplace. There were local markets, and there certainly wasn't a global marketplace. So a lot of the regulatory restructure we have today has served us very, very well, but it is antiquated. It's 90 years old. It was built for a world that is rapidly changing. And so I guess philosophically, you always come down to a question is, is it the role of regulators to kind of keep things the way they are because the regulatory framework is there? Or is it to say, look, this innovation is coming. We're not going to stop it. So do we evolve to keep pace with it? And that was my philosophy at the CFTC. It wasn't for me, an unelected official to basically tell the marketplace to adopt a market structure that was comfortable for me as a regulator and comfortable for existing regulatory structure. It was to try to adapt our regulatory structure to keep pace. And I think there is a degree to which the existing structure can be adaptable and somewhat easier at the CFTC perhaps than at the SEC because the CFTC has a principles-based framework as opposed to a rules-based framework. So it's a little bit easier to take those principles and adapt them to a changing world. But ultimately, I truly believe that's what we have to do. So that's philosophically the role of a regulator. What is this new innovation and why is it so challenging? Well, because it really takes the power of the internet and does to financial services banking, and in fact, money itself, what the internet has done to social interaction, retail shopping, photography, entertainment, travel, leisure, so many other industries, now that internet is setting its sights on financial services, and it's going to be dramatically transformative in many, many ways. The easier ones are, it's it's definitely taken away nine to five, Monday through Friday, as a basis for financial services and gone to 365, seven days a week, 24-7. That's almost the easy part. The harder parts are its borderless nature, and our system is based upon borders, and really hard is its decentralization nature. The thrust of the 33 Act, the Securities Laws, the Commodities Exchange Act, all written in the 1930s, is an entity-based regulatory framework. Identify the intermediaries and then license them, and then deputize them to do certain activities on behalf of regulators, gather information, report, monitor the activities of their participants, et cetera, et cetera. That is really challenged by this new innovation, which decentralizes the intermediaries and the entities. And it goes to an entity list framework or an entity less essential framework. That's really, really challenging. And it's going to require regulators to move away from an entity-based approach to regulation to more of an activity-based approach to regulation. That may sound 
really hard, but the very technology that is decentralizing is actually giving regulators the tools to become activities-based regulators. That is big data analysis, pattern recognition, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Regulators can become nodes on blockchains, and rather than rely on centralizers, they can use these tools to look for activities. And while that may seem foreign to financial market regulation, in other walks of law enforcement, we do it all the time. In fact, that's how we do a transportation safety law enforcement. We don't stop folks before they get on the highway and say, where do you live? Where do you bank? What's your social security number? What association are you associated with that we regulate? No, people freely get on the freeway and drive. If they, however, engage in activities that show a pattern, that identify with a pattern of bad behavior, such as speeding, reckless driving, we then pull them over, stop them, get their identity, et cetera. That's activities-based regulation that we've been doing for a long, long time outside of financial regulation. We can approach financial regulation in a similar activities-based fashion, but it's going to change a complete mindset change for regulatory agencies. And now I know there are some of my former regulators who simply do not want that to happen because it changes the way they historically interact with markets. But that's where the technology is leading us. And I don't think a just say no approach to technological innovation is going to work. I think regulators are going to have to evolve with this, adopt the tools that the technology gives us and evolve our entity-based approach to more of an activity-based approach. And I think within that, we can actually be a lot more effective than we currently are I can tell you most law enforcement actions begun by regulators are entirely anecdotal based. I'd say that first, it sort of goes back to my point earlier about the potential for cryptocurrency to be used as a means for evading sanctions or facilitating other illicit activity like ransomware and cybercrime. The first entities that I need to regulate cryptocurrency are international partners (laughs) to actually effectively regulate and then implement the supervisory and investigative regimes in place consistent with the anti-money laundering standards that the Financial Action Task Force put forward. And then, of course, focusing on the prudential requirements that you know we're working on at BIS and FSB. There's a lot of opportunity for international partners to establish regulatory frameworks and expectations that are critical based on, as Chris put it, this borderless nature of the cryptocurrency sector, which has highly distributed operations in many instances and can enable immediate, instantaneous cross-border value transfer of significant value in a way that can combine some of the risk features of both cash and wire transfers if you don't have certain controls in place. Of course, it's all based on design. There's potentially benefits that you get from public ledgers. Of course, you can also obfuscate it through other mechanisms like mixing and tumbling and anonymity-enhanced cryptocurrencies. So there's a lot of different risks depending on the specific assets. So who needs to regulate it first? The international community, we need to join us in establishing effective and comprehensive anti-money laundering regimes. Domestically, it's exactly as Chris put it, it's complicated. <laughs> the US financial regulatory framework is generally technology neutral. So current rules and requirements are imposed on types of activities or assets based on the economic reality of what's occurring versus the form that the asset takes or its underlying technology. So that tech neutral approach is actually how the U.S. has has regulated the space since at least 2011, for example, under FinCEN's regulations for virtual currency exchanges to be regulated as money services businesses. 
So I think that maintaining a technology neutral approach is probably something that I would end up advising, but ultimately we'll end up deferring to the recommendations for policy changes that agencies point to. I'll underscore some of the risks that the EO really, really highlighted. There is an insufficiency and an inconsistency in implementation of appropriate controls, especially on the prudential side across the cryptocurrency landscape to address things like liquidity risk, market risk, credit and counterparty risk, cyber and operational risks. These issues are the ones that I think we're really looking forward to the recommendations from the interagency, including policy recommendations about what we can do to try to mitigate these risks, trying to figure out then what the right answer is on the regulatory framework inside of the United States, leveraging work like what the president's working group put forward on recommendations for regulation of stablecoin issuers. So there's a lot that we have to look at, but it is going to be complicated and potentially involve partnership with Congress as well. Uh, We're going to be considering all of that. So I don't want to preempt uh, the recommendations that come out of the interagency work. Finally, since Chris underscored some of the unique challenges that this space is is especially going to bring for its potential for disintermediation and just the multifaceted aspect of these assets. It is complicated because some of these assets can function as mediums of exchange and substitutes for currency. They can function as investment contracts and securities. They can be commodities and derivatives. They could potentially be multiple of these things or in their life cycle may transition between one depending on their economic use. So that can create some interesting complexities for regulation, or at least for application of regulation based on where you're hitting it in the life cycle and what the role and responsibility for the entities that are involved with it are. In the world of disintermediation and how we evolve the regulatory regime, the EO openly acknowledges that there are some unique challenges that this space may ultimately present to our current regulatory framework and that we will drive an evolution of the U.S. approach. And the regulators are key partners. They are invited to the interagency policy committee that will be chaired by the National Security Advisor and the Assistant to the President for Economic Policy. So we look forward to working with them to try to figure out how do we evolve to address some of the issues that Chris pointed to. I know right now a lot of entities call themselves decentralized finance. I think that it's a spectrum, right? Like there's a lot of things that say that they're decentralized or centralized. And actually it's it's normally not a binary or a zero or a one. It's, it's somewhere on that spectrum. And there may be some level of centralization and entities that are operating as administrators or owners and operators of those systems, in which case I think that there's some interesting regulatory questions where I would advise them to go, you know, speaking to FinCEN and the SEC and CFTC, depending on the activity that's being, you know, promoted and facilitated on that application. But I I do agree with Chris that depending on the future direction that the digital asset system takes, whether it goes more into the decentralized world, moving away from there being entities, which is typically where most of our regulations apply today, or if it remains centralized because of the potential you know, interests and, and liability and other potential benefits for responsible actors in the space. I'm not sure what the future is, whether it will be more decentralized or whether it'll stay kind of centralized, but leveraging the benefits of the decentralized system. So kind of a hybrid, but we definitely are going to monitor that. We're aware of it and acknowledged it in the executive order and we'll evolve our approach in a risk-based manner because they are living frameworks. However that evolves, I actually think we're learning the limits of government over-reliance on exchanges and other intermediaries to, in a sense, do the job of data collection analysis. The time has actually come for, I believe, regulators themselves to have the quality of data that you can't get from any one intermediary in a global world to gather the information and do the quantitative analysis itself. 
Well, with that, thank you very much, Carol and Chris, for being with us today and for sharing your views on the recent executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets. There are certainly a lot of varying innovative approaches by different countries with different priorities and different perspectives that are all worth hearing. We've explored the U.S. approach and perspective today, and we'll explore those of other countries and jurisdictions that are leading on these issues as well, be they Europe, Singapore, China, and and many others to come. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IIF website as well at IIF.com.